So welcome back to part two of our conversation about Americana and the American road trip and how it relates to Supernatural. We spent some time in part one sort of defining Americana and getting a working definition for what Americana is and how that relates to folk tales and folk culture and particularly urban legends and how in the first season of Supernatural, Supernatural really takes a lot of time to address a lot of urban legends in order to really occupy that space between the plausible and the implausible that it is really dealing with in the sense that it's dealing with a lot of legends, uh, both of urban origin and legends of just human religions and human experiences and um, speculations and that sort of thing. I had a lot of thoughts about uh, the episodes we watched as we were talking through the definition, which is exactly what we want to have happen. Um, nice. Ready to just dive right in if you are. Yeah, let's do it. So one of the things that really I really enjoyed from one of our source materials was the, the Vanishing Hitchhiker and the discussion of what constitutes folklore and urban mm-hmm. legends in particular, uh, because urban legends are a subset of folklore. But it's interesting that urban legends are still something that we see in the modern world and is folklore that's been adapted to urban environments, as the name suggests. and Urban legends have a very particular set of requirements where, Mm -hmm. and I was like reading through this list and I was like, oh yeah, like that's totally what urban legends are. Like, but I never really thought about it before. And it's, it's really, every urban legend I've ever heard has fit into this category, but it's like things that you are told by your peer group in a specific setting generally. um, And allegedly from a couple degrees of separation from the person who's telling it so like my cousin or my like best friend from childhood or my great aunt or something like that or my mother's friend so it's like one or two degrees of separation that the person who's purportedly who's who's telling the story purportedly has with the origin of the story Mm -hmm. and it's things that are like pretty semi-plausible like a guy with a hook hand killing teenagers who are on a secluded road is not something that is outside the realm of possibility. A lot of them do have a supernatural element. So like Bigfoot or various other things that generally people don't wouldn't necessarily call plausible, but uh, a lot of urban legends are reasonably plausible. I mean, I can think of several of things I've heard over the years that people have told me and I'm then looking back, I'm like, oh, that was an urban legend. That wasn't just like a weird story that happened to somebody once. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting to me, I think, well, so in the notes that we made about this, uh, we sort of looked at the way that they contrast legends from further in our, in our culture's past, which often function as attempts to explain the supernatural, uh, whereas urban legends are, more often trying to place uh, shocking events in plausible scenarios. And I sort of made a note about how in both cases, the culture and the story are trying to sort of 
situate these really scary or horrifying or bizarre events or possibilities into their own particular worldview in a way that makes sense with their world or that violates that culture's worldview and point of view in a normative way. Um, And like the example I used for that was ghost stories. So like ghost stories are often told in either a very specific context, like at a sleepover or around a campfire. Like you wouldn't just like expect someone in your office to randomly tell you a ghost story. (laughs) That would be weird. (laughs) That would be really weird. (laughs) Stop being so weird, Steve. Nobody wants to hear your ghost stories. Exactly. Like, they happen in very specific settings. Um, And or the other time I've heard people tell ghost stories is as part of a conversation about whether ghosts exist. Um, Oh, well, yeah, that makes sense. Right. And so someone will sit, will be like, well, someone told me this ghost story. And obviously that can't have happened. Therefore, ghosts aren't real. And someone else will be like, well, this happened to my aunt. And obviously it did happen because my aunt is a reputable person. So obviously ghosts are real. And so I think that like that's ghosts are obviously sort of on shaky ground in American culture. I would say that the idea of believing in ghosts is something that most people sort of look at a little sideways, but I would also say that a lot of people do have like some inkling of belief in ghosts. Like maybe not when you're sitting in your office and Steve's telling you telling you his fifth ghost story of the day, but like <laughs> Steve, why do you care about ghosts so much? No, it is interesting because I actually have a friend who does believe in ghosts really, really strongly. Um, yeah. And she works in healthcare, and she's told me that a lot of people who work in healthcare believe in ghosts, hmm. okay. uh, which I find really interesting. Um, but she, like, 100% says she has experienced ghosts and believes in ghosts. And so I definitely, I know somebody who, who 100% does, does believe in ghosts. So it's not right. that outside the realm of, abil- of possibility to at least know somebody who <laughs> believes in them. Right, exactly. It's one of those things where it's like, like Bigfoot, it's like, well, maybe like, I don't believe it and you don't believe it, but you probably know somebody who does. And if you're like out in the middle of the woods on a moonless night, like maybe you might believe it at that moment in time, um, regardless of whether you normally do. Yeah, context matters a lot for all of this. Yeah, that was just, like, interesting to me how, like, they gave this example of how, well, legends have traditionally done this, but urban legends do this, but it they're actually both, like, based on what they said in the article, like, they're both sort of working to do similar things. Mm-hmm. It's just a difference of what people are willing to say is plausible. And Supernatural does a really interesting thing sort of tying together the concepts of Americana and urban legends and folklore, where it takes things that are very quintessentially American urban legends. For example, the Hook Hand legend is one that has a lot of very American elements to it. Young couple 
in a car, a secluded area, and murders and all that sort of stuff. And it deals with these urban legends very directly and comes from a place of a assumed shared knowledge about these legends. It's actually interesting because I actually didn't realize the hook hand was an urban legend until I saw this episode. So for me, that was a very different experience than for you, where you knew the hook hand legend. And when the, on the blood, uh, the blood on the wall that says, uh, aren't you glad you didn't turn on the light? I stopped mm-hmm. the, on the rewatch, I still didn't know the legend that well, and I stopped the thing, and I was like, what is this? And I looked it up, and I was like, oh, that's part of the legend. So it was a, it was a very different experience for me than it would be for somebody who knew the legend and was watching it. Yeah, and actually, um, so I've heard a lot of different, like, variations on that story, like, at various points, although I don't like scary stories that much sometimes uh you just like can't escape them like yeah, when you're on a bus <laughs> yeah or in a, at a sleepover it's hard to escape when they literally got you <laughs> held in their house <laughs> right <laughs> not to make a sleepover sound like a hostage situation well, sometimes <laughs> it is <laughs> <laughs> But uh, I'd heard a lot of different variations on that story. And so when I was watching the episode, it like struck a familiar note in the back of my mind, but I didn't know why. And that almost made it like creepier that it was like, I know this from somewhere, but like, why do I know this? Yeah, the sort of half remembered uh, thread. And I mean, I think that that's something quintessential about urban legends is that they're sort of half remembered and they're semi-plausible and they seem like they happened just the town over and so they work their way in in a way that's very insidious in a way that like I don't know alien sightings or things like that that you can just immediately dismiss aren't as like that it's a little bit more subtle than things like that yeah it is but I think like it's also I, I mentioned this to you the other day. It's really interesting to me how we didn't like specifically pick episodes from any particular season. We just said, oh, I remember this episode is like relevant to this topic. And so we're going to watch it. And it's really interesting how many of these episodes ended up being from season one. And even like other season one episodes that we didn't watch for this episode, like Bloody Mary, deal really heavily with urban legends. Um, and I think, I don't it's just interesting to me that they do that right up front. Well, I think that that comes in with the original thought of what they probably wanted the show to be. They wanted it to be, because I remember reading once that the original concept for the show was two brothers who were journalists who traveled around mm-hmm. investigating the paranormal and that sort of thing. Um, uh. And so it shifted, I think, and they've done, a, they, we've talked a little bit about different shifts that they, they, they did throughout the series where originally Sam was supposed to be more of the main character and then Jensen Ackles is obviously a very talented actor, so it shifted to let him have a bigger role, and then the dynamic between Jensen Ackles and Jared Padalecki made it such that really having a story about 
both of them made a lot more sense. And so several things about the show has influenced, I think, the trajectory. And I think we see in these early seasons really sort of um, an idealized concept of what the show would have been without all the other things that go into a TV show. So if this had just been a book series, it probably would have been very different. Mm -hmm. Um, But it really does want to set up this Western detective sort of derivative to investigate urban legends and deal with the pastoral made into the urban in a very, in a very interesting way. And the urban legends is a really great way for supernatural to sort of traverse that liminal space between what people know isn't true and what we suspect isn't true. And so to, especially as a way to introduce a series, that's going to be about supernatural things. That's a really comfortable and good place to start off because it's in the realm of possibility, like dealing with some sort of like, person who murders people by the side of the road that's a very even if that's something that we don't necessarily think is true it's something mm-hmm. that very possibly could be true and something that we suspect may be true and so to use that as a transitioning point from the urban legends that are semi-plausible into the more supernatural things that aren't plausible i think is a good way to draw viewers in for that first season yeah, yeah. That actually, what you're saying there sort of reminds me of this other article we read. Um, well, it's a chapter from a book. Um, the book is called The Resonance of Unseen Things. And the chapter we read was called You Can't Repair History. Uh, and it, it actually is about aliens. <laughs> but it even as I was like saying aliens is an example of like something that's not plausible, I was like, oh, this is a bad example. Somebody <laughs> finds aliens plausible. The aliens fit into the urban legend thing. Ah, this is a bad example. Oh. No, you're good. This other article we read really dwells on how the American West in particular Uh, and its history of both American imperialism and American ideals being projected onto it sort of leave this gap in the imagination that people rush to fill. And I think, I don't know, like that, what you were saying just now about the role of urban legends in Supernatural to sort of ease us into from the plausible to the less plausible Uh, sort of reminded me of how um, this talks about how people build up these stories to deal with the landscapes around them and their own anxieties and a sense of lack of understanding of the world around them and how the way that they look for patterns isn't the way that we would necessarily go about identifying like cause and effect, but allows them to build this picture through repeated motifs in various things that they find. Oh yeah, and I think that um, Supernatural always has this veneer of this could be happening in our world just around the corner, especially in the early seasons. And 
um, even when canonically it's clearly proven that it's not our world, it's a slightly different world, it still has, it still wants to present this sort of just to the left of reality sort of thing, which I think that these, the episodes, particularly with uh, the deal with urban legends that people have heard, or various other, like even just ghosts and spirits and things that people, a lot of people do believe in, uh, I think makes the world that Supernatural in just seem that like a little bit more special, a little bit further from the mundane and the humdrum of everyday life. And that's what makes the Winchesters interesting characters is that they do deal in this like secrets that are just under the surface of the real world, which elevates them from being mechanics to mechanics and <laughs> academics to a mechanic and a lawyer a mechanic yeah from um, a lawyer wannabe at least dean is a proper mechanic <laughs> Dan just wants to be a lawyer anyway so it, it, it elevates them from being just ordinary people into being heroes because they do see past the things and it 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 lends you a little bit of plausible deniability that's like mm-hmm. okay well yes maybe this isn't happening but they're dealing with things that potentially could, so, in some mm-hmm. ways. I think it's also, it's really interesting to me when they choose to play things straight and when they choose to kind of subvert them. Um, so, like, uh, Scarecrow, they play super straight, like, right down the middle. But they also have this, like, more emotionally complex B-plot going on. So I think maybe they just didn't want to distract from that. But it's, yeah. like, just very much, like, straight up, that's the legend. I also thought that, that uh, that's an example that really ties into the idea that America has a lot of immigrants that brought in over a lot of cultures. And, like, that, the fact that in this episode, or in the episode Scarecrow, the Scarecrow is literally, j- take like, a tree that was literally imported and planted in American soil. And I feel like that's one of those aspects of uh, American culture that Americana likes to present about itself, that it is part of the immigrant experience as well. Mm -hmm. And so that was really interesting to me that they had made that so blatant. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I think for me, so we sort of talked about this before um, my family's, my mom's side of the family is from the Midwest and I associate Americana very heavily with the Midwest as a region. And I know for you, it's more the South. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But for me, it's very much the Midwest and very much that sort of Germanic Scandinavian culture in the Midwest in particular. So Scarecrow really speaks to that for me and that relationship between immigrants from Scandinavia bringing their culture over and either assimilating or not assimilating uh, to American culture in the Midwest in particular, uh, just like really speaks to me about this struggle that I think you can see in a lot of American media, but in the concept of Americana as well, between what does it mean to, you know, to be a part of this identity you know Norwegian German whatever but also to be American and maybe be an American who's several generations removed from that um Hookman is 
sort of on the opposite end of the spectrum from Scarecrow. If Scarecrow plays it super, super straight, Hookman really tries to subvert our expectations. I think it does so in a way that's become pretty stereotypical. Uh, but yeah, it, like a big part of that is the way that the story really frames the girl in the, in the narrative as a victim, as not having really any kind of agency. And in a lot of ways, like the way the story is set up, like a young couple goes out parking and then the guy dies and the girl is like traumatized. Like, it seems to be, like, an anti-female promiscuity narrative, right? Mm -hmm. Like, in a lot of ways, the girl is being punished for being, quote-unquote, promiscuous. Um, It's interesting, though, because I also kind of read it because he starts doing things she's not okay with, and she tells him (laughs) to stop several times, and he doesn't. So I read it also as potentially punishment for uh, lack of consent. Yeah, and I think that's sort of where the episode for me starts to veer away from the story, because in the story, like, there's none of that, usually. Uh, In any version I've heard, there's never, like, any hesitation on the girl's part. Usually, we, like, don't even really see, like, what they're doing. It's just, like, they're in a car in the middle of nowhere, parked, like. It's implied. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> and so for me the way that the story like Sam and Dean assume that um the spirit is responding to another male reverend in a long line of male reverends but it turns out it's actually responding to the girl and her own ideas about morality and judgment i just you know again like it's a pretty stereotypical way to try and subvert the story but um, it is and i think it is a subversion and like obviously ultimately like a male spirit is still the one actually killing people so like your mileage may vary as to how far they subvert the gender dynamics here uh but like i i i can see it there like they're definitely not just like playing the story straight they like play with it a little yeah Mm -hmm. Uh, and i think it also reminds me of um the thing we read about jaws on the way yes that was a great thread yeah so uh we read a thread um about jaws by kyle burr twitter user had a absolutely wonderful comparison of jaws as a film and birth of a nation as a film and how both of them are very white culture and deal with the same sort of fears of a quote-unquote predator uh, attacking frail white women and the need for white men to then respond against that threat to white women, which uh, that general concept applies very well to both Jaws and Birth of a Nation. Um, And Kyle Burr did a really great job of showing how the way that Jaws frames the attacks, the shark attacks, to be very much on a white woman who is vulnerable and 
and how the main three characters i've never seen jaws but how the main three characters are are all white men that have to sort of put aside their class differences in order to rescue white women and uh i think the best part of his this entire thread is how useless all of this is because literally the only thing at stake is people's ability to go swimming at the beach it's not like they're fighting against oppression or anything like that it's literally just an optional recreational activity and they're very much up in arms about it <laughs> so that was hilarious and it is is sort of his point of why it's so quintessentially a white film uh so i've seen jaws but it's been mm, maybe like six years so i don't remember it super well like the points that they have there about white men needing to defend frail white women and the ideas it has about um, sexuality in Mm. particular uh, and how in both cases the predator quote-unquote is a threat to women in a sexual way in birth of a nation it's like very overtly sexual and in jaws it's a little more oblique it so like the opening scene is like a young couple frolicking on the beach um it's sort of implied that they have sex and that it's not very satisfying for them. <laughs> and, <laughs> this is in jaws a oh, man yeah this is funny. okay uh and then the woman goes swimming uh and i think she's wearing like a bikini and again, it's been six years, but I want to say, like, we see her take her, like, bikini top off. Like, I think she might be topless while she's swimming. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't – we see her from below, from the shark's perspective, and it's a straight shot in between her legs. Mm. Um, so it's just, like, very sexually framed, despite the fact that it's an animal that has absolutely no sex- sexual interest and is mostly just interested in lunch. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, yeah, and I think one of the things that um, uh, Kyle Burr pointed out is that it, it Jaws ended up launching a completely undeserved campaign against sharks, which, because of the fears that people had for specifically, like, white women swimming and not being able to go swimming without shark attacks, which is not actually a thing that most beaches ever have to worry about. <laughs> Uh, and certainly not a thing that is an actual threat for many people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I think like the ideas that that thread brings up about um, the role of gender dynamics and um, sexuality and race dynamics, great, race dynamics, the great white savior. I think you can sort of see those in play. In various episodes we looked at, I think that the concept of uh, protecting the white lady sort of thing really comes into play a lot, especially in Hook Hand. We see that very, very strongly in the dynamic between the women, vic- the woman victim, and Sam in particular, because there's this sort of interest, like there's this sexual dynamic that's and sexual attraction that's going on between them, which was very confusing for me because this is pretty soon after Jess dies for Sam and her boyfriend or her the person she was go, like going on a date with just died in front of her and it just 
it's a very awkward interaction. Also, the fact that her, like, the ma- the female victims, like, the, the, what's her name? Haley? Lori? Lori. Um, the fact that her roommate, who is a woman of color, was the promiscuous mm-hmm. one, uh, mm-hmm. made me feel kind of uncomfortable because that felt very much like a continuation of sexualization, sexualizing women of color, and sort of the like weird implication that somehow her roommate is leading her down the wrong path. Um, so that was obviously had some like very strange connotations that I don't that weren't great, and also it just the 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 romance felt very very forced between Sam and this girl. I actually. Um for me like one of the best parts of that episode is the relationship between Sam and Laurie and to me it it doesn't feel forced it feels like they're both mourning someone and looking for a distraction and so they like sort of fall into each other's arms and then they're both like no this is a bad idea like I'm not doing this because I like you I'm doing this because I'm like sad about yeah, dealing with the tragedy in my own life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so, like, I actually really, like, bought that. That's fair. But I do kind of, I want to springboard from what you said about Hook Hand uh, dealing really heavily with sort of a college environment. Because I think that's actually, like, an aspect of Americana that we haven't talked about yet that comes through really heavily in Hook Hand. Um, There are a handful of other episodes where they, like, uh, are either investigating a murder that happened on a college campus or, like, go to a college campus to, like, talk to a professor of, like, religious studies or something. But I I think you're right that this is the only one where they ever, like, actually live on campus and pretend to be college students. I also am amused at how easy that was. They literally just show up at a, at a frat and, like, oh, we're from out of state, whatever. And, like, it's such a college thing because that would totally work. And, like, they just it ran really well. They're, wor- they're in the library. They're clearly studying. Who cares if nobody sees them in class ever or the... Like, nobody in that frat house, house is going to go to the registrar and be like, wait, do these people actually go here? Like, like it's such an easy con. It's, like, it's hilarious. I love it. Yeah, I mean, it is obviously the most stereotypical portrayal of a college that's mm-hmm. not actually accurate to any one individual's uh, experience of college. Right. But as a backdrop, I think it's really interesting because that is such a... Uh, like a lot of urban legends deal with people at the college age who are at college because it's a time where you are particularly vulnerable and you are you don't have a lot of um you don't necessarily have a lot of support systems and you're on your own for the first time and for people who haven't really been given a lot of freedom before that can sometimes be a very dangerous situation uh where they do things that are foolish and it's also a lot of people's first experience with alcohol and other drugs and so it's a delicate time um yeah which i think sort of neatly moves us into sort of our next discussion point well rachel has just has to step into the other room for a second but uh we do have a very special guest who's joining us now uh 
this is Ginger. Um, and Ginger's going to with us a little bit about urban legends and Hookman and all of that fun stuff, as well as gothic literature and its role in supernatural. Uh, is there anything you want to say to introduce yourself? I'm Ginger, and I love Southern Gothic so much, and also Gothic literature. Yeah. And Supernatural has that stuff, so it's really good. Specifically, you had mentioned the episode Hookman um, really struck a chord for you. Yeah, so the myth of the Hookman is, I've learned recently, a pretty uniquely American thing. Like, I was having dinner with some friends the other day who were born in Europe and raised in Europe, but they have kids who were, you know, they were born and raised in America. And I, I was having dinner with them and I asked them, well, have you ever heard of the hook man? And they were like, what's the hook man? And so I turned to the kids and I'm like, have you ever heard of the hook man? And they're like, oh yeah, I know what the hook man is. So it seems to be this pretty uniquely American thing. And I looked into it and the, the episode of Supernatural we're talking about incorporates a lot of different aspects of different hook man legends into it. Mm -hmm. And the Hookman legend itself, the earliest written record we have of it is from a Dear Abbey column in 1960. And somebody wrote in and they, they published the letter and it reads, Dear Abbey, if you are interested in teenagers, you will print this story. I don't know whether it's true or not, but it doesn't matter because it served its purpose for me. A fellow and his date pulled into their favorite lover's lane to listen to the radio and do a little necking. The music was interrupted by an announcer who said there was an escaped convict in the area who had served time for rape and robbery. He was described as having a hook instead of a right hand. The couple become frightened and drove away. When the boy took his girl home, he went around to open the car door for her and he saw a hook on the door handle. I will never park to make out as long as I live. I hope this does the same for other kids. Jeanette. That is a great thing that you found. And I love this, this line. I don't know whether it's true or not, but it doesn't matter because it served its purpose for me is so interesting to me. Yeah. But that element of like the, the story serving a moral purpose. Um, exactly yeah 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 that's really interesting and it's super explicit it's like it is. <laughs> this is a morality tale in case anyone was wondering <laughs> a lot of people who nerds who are in stuff like this think that the hook man legend comes from an actual serial killer who killed people in Texarkana in the 1940s and the it's called the moonlight murders of Texarkana basically what happened was in February 1946 there was a couple Jimmy Hollis and his girlfriend Mary Larry I think is the pronunciation and they were parked in a lover's lane and a man in a mask with a gun came up, threatened them at gunpoint and assaulted them. And he beat them both, but they both lived. They separately got to different places and they said like, we've been attacked, we need help, the police came. And they gave conflicting descriptions of what their attacker looked like to the police, so the police weren't really sure. 
what happens. Then a couple weeks later on March 24th, a man, Richard Griffin and his girlfriend, Polly Moore, what happened was um, there was a person in their car and they were driving and they drove past a secluded road and they saw a car with what looked like two people asleep in it. I don't think we know exactly what happened, but um, presumably, you know, they were kind of concerned. So they got out of their car and they went to investigate and they found that it was in fact two dead people in this car who had been shot. They called the police and, you know, the police investigated. But they did not necessarily find any information. Then, again, a few weeks later on April 13th, this is a really, this is a really sad story. There was a young woman, Betty Booker, who played the saxophone and she was in a band. She had a gig one night on April 14th and, no, it was April 13th, I'm sorry. And she had a friend of hers, Paul Martin, come to pick her up from this gig, but they never got home. And the next morning, Paul Martin's family found his body on the side of a road and he had been shot four times and he had died. And at this point, of course, you know, they were like, oh my God, what happened to Betty? And they, so they look and later in the day, they found her body about two miles away behind a tree. She had also been shot. And they continued to search and they found Martin's car some distance away from the body outside of Spring Lake Park in Texarkana. And the police said that there had been a terrible struggle there. And friends of these two people said that they did not think that some, like, that they had attacked each other. They were like, no, that wouldn't have happened. Uh, we don't know who would have attacked these people. They had no enemies. And then finally, on May 3rd, there was a woman, Katie Starks, and she was in her bedroom getting ready for bed. And she heard what she describes as sound like breaking glass. And so she, from the living room, and she came out to investigate and she saw that her husband, Virgil Starks, had been shot and he was sitting in his armchair bleeding. She's like, oh my God. So she goes to call the police only to be shot twice in the face. Miraculously, this does not kill her. It wow. doesn't even slow her down. <laughs> she runs out of the house and goes to um, a family member's house across the street. Nobody's home. She goes to neighbor and she says oh my god Virgil has been shot they call the police but by the time the police gets there the shooter is gone she survives after that there were no more murders and no more assaults they arrested a man at one point for the murder because his wife said I think my husband is the one who did this but then she refused to testify against him because they had to let him go and Again, because of for, like the survive the, the couple originally who survived offered conflicting descriptions of the man, and so the police weren't really sure who it was. There were various suspects. There have been several books written on this subject, and we don't know who it was to this day, and we may never know. So weird. So weird. It's very strange. Yeah. 
Um, it's interesting to me that uh, the Hookman legend has this like historical antecedent. It sort of, when you were describing the series of murders, it sort of reminded me of, actually, this is like a weird connection, but it sort of reminded me of the Zodiac Killer. It, it does, it does. The parked cars and couples. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's unsolved. And, you know, it's another thing is I've read that they think maybe the reason that the Zodiac Killer stopped is because he was arrested for another crime. I've heard the same thing about the... um moonlight murders i mean yeah like that would make sense like that's a really like logical reason and i think rachel and i were discussing this earlier about how in the episode Hookman, there at one point like aren't you glad you didn't turn on the light is on the wall um, yeah yeah and ray said she'd like looked up the Hookman legend because she's never really heard it before she went to school in Canada and I guess maybe they just didn't tell it there um, maybe that that would be interesting like if it's really so confined to just specifically America not even like North America yeah so if any Canadians are listening to this um have you ever heard the hookman legend um was that like a part of your childhood or is that like a weird American thing yeah so Rachel um had like looked up the legend she was like oh like I like didn't realize until after the episode when I was looking up the legend that that was like part of the story that aren't you glad you didn't turn on the light and I was like well I like like the versions of the story I heard most often growing up didn't have that but I had heard it somewhere and it like struck a chord and it was like almost creepier because I like kind of recognized it yeah I'm thinking about it and I realized I actually know it from a different story yeah, I I never associated those two urban legends as being the same. I've heard them both, but separately. Yeah, yeah. And we've actually, we've talked about this other urban legend before with the, the babysitter. Yeah, so we talked about this, we talked about this urban legend when we talked about best and favorite episodes. And I mm-hmm. said the episode I find the scariest is the one that sort of follows that urban legend, um, where there are like kids living in the house. Um, and the episode makes several references to that story. And I remember now, like, in most most versions of that story I've heard, the babysitter, like, puts down her hand, pet the dog. And, like, and the, the dog, dog licks, licks her hand. Yeah. And then she she wakes up in the morning and the dog is, like, dead. And it's written, like, aren't you glad you didn't turn on the light? Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I was, I could not figure out why having that phrase in a hookman story like seemed weird and off-putting and like almost more disturbing than it would be in a normal context and it's because it's from a different legend so you're not expecting it yeah yeah and I think I mean Supernatural does this a lot where it takes like parts of stories to establish mood within an episode but yeah, and I mean, even they're they're mixing different versions of the Hookman legend to create a, a Hookman that's best for their narrative purposes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's really interesting that this has, like, this historical precedent, but the episode is also reaching to different versions of this urban legend and to different urban legends to sort of construct 
its best possible narrative. And we like brought up briefly before about this idea of the Hookman narrative in particular of being being like a moral tale. And I think that sort of ties into the gothic literature aspect in an interesting yeah. way. I don't know that much about gothic literature, but I do feel like that sort of struggling with morality and religion, it seems to be a big part of it. Well, <laughs> now seems like a good time to bring up slasher movies. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> so, um, this is one of, I have to drive through Texarkana pretty frequently, and whenever I do, I remind everybody in the car with me of this, because it's one of my favorite facts. So, in 1976, a film company made a movie called The Town That Dreaded Sundown, based on the Moonlight Murders. They filmed it in Texarkana, <laughs> and it's based on the murders, and... <laughs> Oh boy, despite the fact that there were two different lawsuits over this movie, since 2003, the Texarkana, Texas Department of Parks and Recreation has these festivals where they show movies for free in Spring Lake Park, which I remind you, is the park where one of the murders possibly took place. <laughs> In May, when the murder, some of the murders took place, and in October, and one of the movies they show is The Town That Dreaded Sundown, <laughs> in the park where one of the murders might have taken place, because we are a classy people in Texas. I just, the movie, The Town That Dreaded Sundown, actually came out two years after the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and two years before Halloween, and a lot of film nerds consider it to be one of the first slasher movies. And if you've watched any slashers, you know that what slashers are about is if you have sex, you will die, which is, <laughs> you know, it's a big subject of cultural anxiety in the 80s, but also in this episode of Supernatural. It's all about, you know, this girl's sexuality and the conflict that it causes in her family and with other people. Yeah. Yeah. And to some extent, about her perception of the sexualities of the people around her, too, right? Yeah. Like, her roommate and her father being, and her not-boyfriend. This, this, this fucking guy. I'm, this fucking guy. <laughs> like, he isn't listening to her, isn't paying attention to her when she, like, doesn't want him to keep going. And that sort of constructs this narrative of not just having sex being bad, but specifically, like, assaulting a woman is bad, which, great, good job, Supernatural. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's, like, established pretty early on that she's, like, very straight edge. That's a good way of putting it. Um, and she's like clearly like not just sheltered, but um, very uncertain about the whole concept of sexuality itself. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So I think it like it sets up a really clear morality from our protagonist, protagonist, <laughs> right from the beginning, which stays pretty consistent throughout the episode, and it's. Also a morality that 
doesn't really have a lot of room for error or human flaws and doesn't hold up very well in the real world. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And the episode is sort of her discovering that as even people she genuinely likes and either is friends with or looks up to in the case of her roommate and her father fail to yeah. live up to her moral standards. Circling back around to um, the slasher thing, it's established that she's in a sorority and that mm-hmm. this fucking guy is in a fraternity. And a lot of slashers take place in sororities, like the house on Sorority Row and Black Christmas. And I don't even know where I was going with this. I just think that's a point. Like, the, I, I, th- I feel, watching this episode, I felt like it was Supernatural's homage to the slasher as a genre. Huh. I'm really glad that that you're picking up on that because so we've mentioned before on the podcast I don't really do like horror as a genre. Like so, girl, like, I don't understand. I don't like you watch Supernatural, but not the other things. But Supernatural doesn't feel like horror to me most of the time. Fair enough. Yeah. That's how it be. Yeah, it's okay. I don't like comedy either, so <laughs> that's interesting. I'm go- I'm not gonna we could go off. We could go off. <laughs> Returning to the point, the topic. <laughs> I think it is interesting to me this college environment. I think there is a lot there in American culture about anxieties about sexuality while in college and in particular on like coeducational campuses. Mm-hmm. Um, and how sororities and fraternities sort of represent both like a single gender environment within a broader co-ed environment. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, sororities and fraternities also have kind of a reputation. Your mileage may vary as to how deserved that reputation is, but a reputation. So, I mean, I think I think it does seem relevant, though, that, like, this takes place in a college environment, and college is a time when Americans are often exploring their sexuality, yeah. You know what, more on this, when I was watching it, and for the audience, when I was in high school, I watched, like, I I think I watched seasons one through three, because I know I didn't get to the part where Castiel is, and that was, like, oh boy, probably seven or eight years ago. And I, so I've been re-watching and I remember stuff, but other stuff is completely new. And watching this episode, it struck me, it seemed very Ted Bundy. Like somebody coming yes. into a sorority house and killing people. And that's the vibe I kind of got off this, the, the spirit of the evil preacher who killed sex workers because he was like, oh, I have this weird religious morality is that he just does not like women he does not like sexuality right like i have to kill people about it which is very serial killer yeah we were talking before about this way in which supernatural tries to subvert the common narrative of like men punishing women for their sexuality by making it a woman who whose morality is determining who gets punished. 
Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, we talked a little bit about the ways in which Supernatural tries to subvert it, but doesn't quite get there. Yeah. Yeah. It And I think that sort of plays into that whole thing because yes supernatural i think they really are trying to subvert it in the way that a lot of shows during this time period were trying to subvert gender dynamics um, what buffy the vampire slayer was that mm-hmm. on at the same time because it slightly predates supernatural uh-huh. um, and actually okay. we've talked about before how the early seasons of supernatural in some ways feel like they're trying to be a spiritual successor successor to Buffy. Oh, yeah, that, that makes perfect sense to me, yeah. So it, it has some of that trying to subvert gender roles but not doing a great job of it that was, like, yeah. common to a lot of shows of the era mm-hmm. and common to a lot of shows that were trying to follow in the footsteps of, like, Buffy and Xena but weren't actually willing to do anything that radical. <laughs> But, like, ultimately, at the end of the day, like, the girl has received her morality from a male figure, her father, and her morality is being enforced on other people by a male figure against her will, and so... Because even, like, they... I think Sam says something, like, she's like, it's my fault, and he's like, no, it's not it's this ghost that this evil spirit that is attached to I want to get into religion at some point here yeah maybe the time but it's it's not like it is her fault and it isn't because it is her it's her feelings towards these people and the morality that's been enforced on her but one thing it's like it's a morality that's been enforced on her Mm -hmm. another thing is that she does not like it's not like she is going out and murdering these people herself. It's the spirit that has attached itself to her that's much more murderous and malevolent that's feeding off of her emotions. Mm-hmm. And so it, like, it is and it isn't her fault, which I think is, again, with slashers, there's always a lot of duality between ideas of, like, is it this person's fault? Is it not? Like, are we being progressive or are we being regressive? Yeah. Which I just, I I don't know, I think that's super interesting is that even though, yes, I think for the most part it is that they can't quite commit to their their point. (laughs) At the same time, though, it does fit into the narrative tropes and aesthetic of the slasher Mm -hmm. that there's a duality between, like, is it her fault or isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think duality in general is just... a very intriguing concept in American culture. Um, And I I think this is going to come up again in our next episode, which is going to be our episode on religion. So I'm going to hold back. (laughs) Um, uh, But I think that actually is like a good segue into the discussion of religion in this episode. um, Because while supernatural kind of fails at doing any sort of robust critique of gender dynamics. I think, as you pointed out when we were talking earlier, it does do a better job of critiquing organized religion in this episode. Although oh, it well, yes. <laughs> okay, so um, I kind of grew up 
as I said, in Texas, which is in, in a very religious area. And this episode, oh boy. So, you know, um, part of, like, again, you said is the episode is that it's about these two characters discovering what's going on. So the audience and the boys are discovering it at the same time. And there's a period of the episode where it looks like this is it. The spirit of this evil preacher who murdered these sex workers because he's murderous and he's like, he's killing in the name of his God. It looks like it's the spirit that is possessing this preacher because he is anxious about his daughter's sexuality. And then of course it turns out that no, it's not him, it's the daughter. But still, the, the thing that stays the same is that it's not these people, it's this evil spirit that murders in the name of its God, even though that is directly against, you know, the religious laws of Christianity. And so it's, it's this monster. And it is taking advantage of the religious mores that have been imposed on this woman and it's like it's like it's kind of her fault but it also it's not because it's these religious mores that have been pushed on her by her father and then by this evil spirit the people she punishes is it's all for religious things okay like that fucking guy let's pass over him because he's just a jerk and we don't <laughs> like him. the roommate though the roommate isn't particularly bad she's just like She's a party girl. She's here for a good time. And she encourages her to dress in like a, you know, a sexually revealing way, which is something probably that this pastor who, you know, killed sex workers wouldn't have approved of. And then she finds out that her father is having an affair with a married woman, which is the religious hypocrisy is incredible. And so the, the hook man is like, it's time to die. <laughs> And then finally, when she realizes that the spirit is responding to her emotions, she feels guilty. And she's like, these people don't deserve this. Like, they, maybe they did wrong, but they don't deserve this. And her self-recrimination then brings the spirit on her. And my favorite part of this episode is when they realize that the hook was melted down they realize that her crucifix is made from metal that was melted down from the hook. And they have to melt it to destroy the spirit, which usually in Western culture, a crucifix is a holy symbol that can expel or harm evil spirits. But in this episode, the evil spirit is in the crucifix. It's directly tied to it. And they have to destroy it in order to dispel it, like, oh my god. And it's like organized religion can turn people to do acts of evil and extremism, which if you've watched the news, happens all the time. And I think it's a big middle finger to organized religion. It's an indictment of organized religion. Yeah. Uh, let's see, do we have anything else we want to talk about? I don't know. I think that's that's sort of what we have. Yeah. All right. So we're going to move on to talking about aesthetic. It looks like Rachel's back. So we're going to jump into that. 
Thank you so much, Ginger, for joining us. I had a really good time, um, and I hope you did as well. And everyone, Ginger might join us again in the future for future podcasts. So if you enjoyed having her on the show, uh, please let us know. And we're excited to talk to her again in the future. Thanks. Yeah. Um, Yeah, which I think sort of neatly moves us into sort of our next discussion point, which is that Americana in many ways serves as supernaturals aesthetic with a capital a and a tm (laughs) (laughs) exactly like you would write it on tumblr yes (laughs) um i mean it's so true though like and both in terms of like the iconography that it uses from you know very straightforward like actual symbols like the sign in route 666 that's like route whatever um i forget what it the number that they use it's not six <laughs> it's not actually route 66 which i found amusing <laughs> to things like what we were just talking about with like this stereotypical idea about college that a lot of americans have i mean the 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 chevy impala is like i think the the biggest other than the like tattoo that they have, it's probably the most iconic symbol from the show. Mm-hmm. And that just screams like Americana. And it's a muscle car that was built in like the 50s, I think. It's got that like boxy um, mid-century style. And it's, I mean, it's an undeniably sexy car. Um, <laughs> but it's also like the fact that it's a car is like one of the primary symbols of the show, I think says a lot about the aesthetics of the show. And also like the way they dress with the like, plaid and leather jackets and work boots like it's very American middle working class very everyday every man sort of like aesthetic uh-huh. um, and uh, of course the like jeans that they wear which like is such a ubiquitous thing that like uh, we almost don't think about it anymore right like like everybody wears jeans and it's not just Americans that wear jeans it's like everyone in the world wears jeans now but it's it's jeans are an American article of clothing. And uh, I think that like, if we saw them in, like we see them in slacks occasionally when they're like throwing suits or whatever, but like clearly that's not like their actual, those are always costumes to them. Uh, and when they're in their, their natural habitat, so to speak, they're always wearing jeans. Yeah. Yeah. Like even when it's maybe not, even fully appropriate for them to be wearing like jeans and a t-shirt or a plaid button-up like and biker boots that's what they wear like I'm thinking about obviously I'm thinking about Wendigo because I think about what they wear in Wendigo a lot (laughs) yeah listeners if you haven't listened to our episode about the Wendigo and you want to hear a long rant about wilderness preparedness go and listen to that episode because it's uh it's brilliant i love that rant it's so good. <laughs> thank um. you thank you <laughs> like another character calls them out on it and if you want to hear about how i feel about that go listen to that rant that we were just talking about but i think it's just a good example of like this is their uniform and they wear it even when it doesn't necessarily make sense. Yeah. And I also think it's interesting because um, the, like I've known a couple like uh, 
workmen in my life and a lot of them especially like machinists don't don't actually wear jeans in my experience they wear like um carhartt like really thick um which i guess it's made out of denim too but i wouldn't necessarily call it jeans and uh like that or overalls and like those sort of things so like there's um and like (laughs) uh also like there are different aesthetics that the show could have gone with, which would have been more practical, like punk, because like having a bunch <laughs> of spikes on one's jacket and that sort of thing would honestly probably be way more helpful than just having like a leather jacket. Like they could have silver spikes and like none of them, like that would be so useful. Like think of all the like werewolf and like various other attacks they would have staved off if they wore collars with silver spikes. I'm just like, there's a huge missed opportunity here. <laughs> Um, you just you just want to see Jen Snackles in Guy Liner. I, I know. have seen Jen Snackles in Guy Liner. I know. I mean, but like you want the to first season of the show plus Ted and Chiro. Like I'm I, I I have that to satisfy myself if I I want to see it. But um, I will say that it would have made more sense. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> and I think living in Seattle, I have to sort of defend the punk aesthetic a little bit, but. I think that I agree that like even when it's not the most practical thing they could be doing, they're still wearing those clothes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like so fundamental to who they are that like, and it's it's a really useful visual shorthand for the show because when we see them in the FBI suits or whatnot, like we know it's a costume, and we and like <laughs> like obviously a hunt. A huge portion of that is the fact that like we know that they're lying about being FBI agents or whatever it is. But it's just like it's just amusing because they they put on these personas um, mm-hmm. to interact with the quote unquote real world, but we as the viewers are the privileged people who get to see them as they like naturally are. Yeah, and I think there are like two groups of people when we're like we're talking about wearing like jeans and a like plaid button down or a t shirt. There are two groups of people who immediately come to mind to me as Americans who would wear that every day as they're going about their everyday work lives. And so first is like college students. Like mm. that's, that's just like what college students wear. And like pretty stereotypically, like it's kind of the default like weekend apparel for mm. Americans and college students get to wear it every day. Um, But the other group of people that immediately come to mind for me, which I think is interesting given discussions we've had in previous episodes, is like cowboys and ranch hands and farm Mm -hmm. workers. Mm -hmm. Like, I, you know, growing up in Wyoming, I know a lot of people who like work on ranches. And that's what they wear. Mm-hmm. Like, they wear, like, jeans and boots and a t-shirt or, like, a plaid button down. Like, that's yeah. what they wear. I would say, though, that it's interesting because um, now that I've lived in the Pacific Northwest for so long, my immediate thought is lumberjacks. <laughs> and I think it's actually <laughs> closer to the aesthetic that the Winchesters follow because the plaid is very, mm-hmm. like, lumberjacky. Also, they're not wearing cowboy boots, so I think that that immediately is a huge difference between, like, I've never met a ranch hand who 
didn't wear like unless I guess there's it's, it's possible that they wouldn't wear boots that you could ride in but that just seems sort of silly and the work boots that the Winchesters wear are not riding shoes at all they're definitely not um I do know like I know people yeah, I, wear like like hiking boots yeah like, no that's not, fair because a lot of times, like, when you're on a ranch, you're not necessarily riding horses to do anything. Like, you have four-wheelers or a tractor or various other things that you need. So, like, wearing work boots isn't, isn't a bad thing. But. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Supernatural draws really heavily on um, those images uh, to really build itself up as an iconically American show. So, thank you all so much for listening. Uh, we really appreciate it. If you like this episode, please give us a thumbs up uh, and rate and review us on iTunes or reblog us on Tumblr or retweet us on Twitter or whatever on whatever platform you're on. <laughs> uh, if you don't like this episode, please don't rate and review us. Please email us and let us know how we can do better. Uh, you can hear our contact information in our end credits info. And we'll pick up next time with more about our discussion of Supernatural's aesthetic um, and really dive into the idea of the United States as a driving culture. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll see you later on down the road. For the meantime, I'm driving. Dreams of the Past podcast is written, researched, and produced by Ray and Mish. You can reach them on Twitter at dreamspastpod. Tumblr at dreamsofthepastpodcast.tumblr.com and email at dreamsofthepastpodcast at gmail.com. Dreams of the Past Podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Please rate and review us. Thanks to Benjamin Geyer and Lynn Music for our theme song, Lonesome Ranger. Awesome.